Good to see you tonight. Um, Let's turn to Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah chapter 2 is where we're going to be again tonight. We're going to be looking at verses 10 through 20 in our study this evening. And I want to start off by asking you a question, one that I want you to think about. And the question is this, which describes you better as a man? Are you a thermostat or a thermometer? And you're thinking, that's a really weird question, Pastor Rob. Um, but, but think of it in this way. You see, a thermometer registers the temperature of the room. You know, my dad, when he was alive at his house in Oceanside, in his TV room, he used to have one of these big, giant, round thermometers with the big red line on it, you know, that would, would register what the temperature was, you know, in his TV room. And why he had that in the TV room and not outside in the backyard, I have no idea, but he just wanted to know, is it too hot or is it too cold in here? But that was my dad. That's what a thermometer does. It registers the temperature of the room. But a a thermostat regulates the temperature of a room. And so people who are thermometers, and here's what I want you to think about, which one are you? People who are thermometers react to situations around them. If it's hot, they get hot. If it's cold, they're cold. If it's tense in the relationship, they're tense. But people who are thermostats are regulating the temperatures. They're responding to a tense situation by bringing peace. They're responding to a fearful situation by bringing courage. They're responding to a hopeless situation by being hopeful. And I think as Christ followers, one of the things that Jesus is seeking to do in our hearts is to make us men who are learning how to respond to the leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives rather than reacting in our flesh. Or to put it another way, he wants us to be more thermostats than thermometers. Nehemiah was such a man. When faced with a horrible situation, when Israel had been attacked and the walls in Jerusalem had been torn down and the temple had been destroyed and the city was just left in ruins and even even after the temple later on had been rebuilt, the walls were still down. It left the people just in a very vulnerable place to their enemies how have, how have we seen Nehemiah react when he gets that news? He doesn't react in the flesh, but he responds in the spirit by fasting and praying and seeking God. And as a result, God would lead him to bring about the restoration of the city and the restoration of the people of Israel. And I think God is looking for men today, men in the church, 
Men who will learn to be thermostats instead of thermometers. A friend of mine, Brian Stupar, who pastors the uh, Calvary Chapel in San Luis Obispo, he said this, men today more than ever, he said, men today more than ever, our world needs you to grow up, heal up, armor up, and be men, rise up and become men of faith, virtue, and courage. And that's really what we're seeing as we look at the story of Nehemiah. Nehemiah rises up, and he's going to help the children of Israel rebuild what has been broken down in their city and in their lives. And I think God is looking for men today who will be those kind of men who will help rebuild what is broken in their lives, in their families, as well as in their communities. So here's what we noted last week at the end of our study, that anytime a Christian seeks to rise up and be a part of a rebuilding work of God, Satan is going to come against him. So we're going to pick it up right where we left off last week in verse 10. Notice it says, when Sanballat the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard of it, they were deeply disturbed. Now check out this last line that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. Isn't that an odd line? These guys were deeply disturbed, frustrated, that somebody had come along and, and he wanted to see you know, how the people of Israel were doing. He wanted to see them get back on their feet. Now, Nehemiah hasn't met these guys yet. This is his first encounter with them is actually going to be at the end of our chapter. However, at this moment, what we're told here is that a storm is brewing and the climate is changing and something is happening. I have no idea what that was. <laughs> I, said, I said a storm is brewing and there it was. It's a little thunder. But things had been going well up to that point. I mean, God's hand was upon him. God was moving and God was working. And King Artaxerxes was was behind him. And and he gave him safe passage for his travels. And he had provision. But now he's letting us know there's going to be opposition. And guys, we need to note this because... I want you to think about what is maybe broken in your sphere of influence right now. What's maybe broken in your life? Maybe it's a relationship with a spouse. Maybe it's a relationship with a child. Maybe it's a relationship with a friend. It could be something that's broken in maybe your career, maybe your your ministry Know this, the devil is never, ever happy when you or others in your life decide that it's time to change, that it's time to rebuild, that it's time to work on this, that it's time to get serious about what God has called us to. Whenever we are seeking to see things change in our lives for the better, to get on target with what God is wanting to do in our life, the devil is always disturbed. Always. And the troops of the enemy get riled up. The enemy raises his ugly head and he wants to resist 
that work of rebuilding. You see, everything that God builds, Satan wants to break. Everything that God creates, Satan wants to counterfeit. Every time that you are seeking to advance the cause of God in your life, there's a force in this world that is seeking to stop you from advancing the cause of God. But here's the contrast to that. The contrast is when when you find yourself just content with the status quo, when you're just content with, you know, What's going on? Anytime that you are thinking, ah, nothing's going to change. It's just always going to be this way. The enemy's content. Listen, guys, he has you right where he wants you. When you are happy with the status quo, when you find yourself in a place that, that you are just you know, thinking nothing's ever going to change, the devil, you have, you're right where the devil wants you to be. Where there's no hope, no, no desire, no vision. The Bible says that where there is no vision, the people perish. Now we'll see the various ways that the enemy seeks to come against Nehemiah as we make our way through this book. But in the beginning of this new section, Nehemiah is letting us know that the clouds of warfare are rolling in. And there's going to be a lot of battle. That's why we like to say that this book is about building and battling. So we look at verse 11 now. It says, so I came to the children of Israel and was there three days. It's been said that there are three kinds of people in the world. There are people who watch what is happening. There are people who wonder what happened? How'd that happen? You know, there's those kind of people. And then there are people who make things happen. Well, with the help of the Lord, Nehemiah is going to be in that last category. He's a guy that makes things happen. He's a guy that the Lord, he leans on the Lord and God's going to do this incredible thing through him. So let's talk about getting started. And I want us to notice three things here that we can learn from what Nehemiah does. The first thing that we see here is that Nehemiah is not in a hurry. He's traveled about 1,500 miles from Persia to make it to Jerusalem. It's a trip that probably took him close to two months. And when he gets there, he's not like, okay, let's rally everybody together. Let's get this thing going. He doesn't do anything for three days. He keeps a very low profile over these first three days, and we're not even given any detail about what he did in those three days, but this is a pattern that we see in the book of Nehemiah about his life. This is one of the things that we'll see over and over again. You might want to write this down. This is what Nehemiah's life looked like, is Nehemiah would pray, and then he would act, and then he would pray again, and then he would act, and then he would pray again. He would pray, get some direction from the Lord, and then he would respond, and then he'd come back and pray again. Praying and acting, praying and acting, Nehemiah, Chuck Swindoll calls him that he was a leader from the knees up. He was a man of prayer. So the the first thing that we note is to not be in a hurry. The second thing that we note about what Nehemiah does is that we need to investigate before we initiate. Let's look at verse 12. Then I arose in the night, and I had a few men with me. And I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. Nor were there, was there any animal with me except for the one that I rode on. 
And I went out by night through the valley gate to the serpent well and the refuse gate and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down and its gates, which were burned with fire. And then I went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal under me to pass. So I went up in the night by the valley and viewed the wall. And then I turned back and entered the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the others who did the work. The thing that we note here about Nehemiah, and this is what a good leader does, is that he doesn't rush into the work, but he patiently gathers the facts firsthand. He's gathering the facts and then he's going to plan his strategy. You see, a thermometer reacts. A thermometer is like, okay, I see this, and they're ready to just jump in. But that's not Nehemiah. Nehemiah began by just observing, just wanting to see. He wanted to see the worst of the situation. And so he makes a careful probing of just what, what was going, what had gone wrong. And what was happening here? You know, sometimes we don't do a very good job of rebuilding or getting the right kind of help because we don't investigate things clearly. Sometimes we just jump in and, and, and some of us, we can have this tendency to be, we're reactionary and we investigate later. It's like we're going to jump in and then we'll, we'll figure out what went wrong afterwards. No, that's not the right way to do it. Nehemiah, he investigates first. He investigated the situation. While others slept, Nehemiah was wide awake. Burden, conscious of the desperate need and the shame and the ruin that was all around him. And so he diagnoses the situation by surveying the ruin walls and thought about the magnitude of the task to which God had called him. He was getting a great picture of what was broken down and how it needed to be rebuilt. And I think this is something that we can learn from Nehemiah. I like to say that we need to do our walking before we do our talking. That we need to, to spend that time walking and serving and talking with God and seeking God. And I love doing prayer walks. If that's, and I'll tell you one of the reasons why I do prayer walks. Because a lot of times if I am not walking when I'm praying, I fall asleep. <laughs> it's being real. So I like to walk and pray. I like to be active and just walking and praying and all, you know, it's great. We have these little cool devices that we call phones that, that we can, you know, put things on and I'll just keep my phone. I'm looking at it as I'm walking and just things that I put on my, my prayer list that I want to pray through or taking various, I love to pray the prayers that Paul has written in Ephesians and Colossians. Those are great ways to pray. Those are ordained and inspired by God. Prayers that you can pray for your friends, for your family, that, that are right there in the word of God. We need to not be guys that are driven by our emotions over things. The third thing that we learn from Nehemiah is how to motivate people to cooperate. And this would be the greatest challenge that Nehemiah would face. And I think this is the greatest challenge that any leader faces. For Nehemiah, this was extremely difficult because the morale had been it's at an all-time low. 
The people are discouraged, they're depressed, they're, they just feel like there's, there's no hope for them. Discouragement had permeated the ranks of Israel, and so his greatest challenge would be to convince the people to tackle this project and to stick with it, even when the going got tough. The toughest challenge for any leader, whether you're trying to rebuild a family, rebuild a ministry, rebuild a business, is seeking to motivate people, especially those who are discouraged. And I think when you're thinking, when you're looking to rebuild something, there's three types of people that you can run into. There's those who are just okay with the status quo. And I'm sure there were people like this in Israel that they were like, hey, the walls have been like this for a hundred years. You know, we, we're fine. We don't need to, we don't need to rebuild these walls. What do we need to rebuild these walls for? I'm sure that there were people who, you know, looked at this and just thought there, there's just, you know, there's no way that we can do this. That's the first challenging person. The other one is the skeptical one. Those who say, this is never going to work. Or those who would say, we already tried this and it didn't work it last time and it's not going to work this time either. There are always the skeptics that want to say, it's too big or it's too hard or it's never going to happen. It can never be done. But to those people, I like to say, how big is your God? How big is your God? Because just like we were singing tonight, it's the evidence And the evidence in our lives, and this is one of the things that Nehemiah is going to point to, of God's faithfulness is the reality to us. It's the reminder to us that there's nothing that is too big for our God. History is on our side that we can believe God to do big things. Can I get an amen to that? You know, the hardest group of people, though, to get behind is not those who are content with the status quo or those who are skeptical. You know who the hardest people to to get behind something is those who are self-absorbed. That's the hardest. And I think that's the problem that plagues the church today is that we live in a culture that has just trained us and poured into us to be people who are just self-absorbed, and we live in a culture that, that pressure just seems to be mounting. And so whether it's being self-absorbed with just what is ever my passion is or being self-absorbed with what my problems are, you know, those are the hardest people to try and deal with. But we're going to see here what Nehemiah does is really, really spot on in the way he deals with this. So what did Nehemiah do to get people to rally behind the vision? I want you to note three things if you're taking notes. The first thing he does is he states the problem clearly. It's clearly defined. Look at verse 17. He says, then I said to them, you see the distress that we are in and how Jerusalem lies in waste and its gates are burned with fire. The fact that the city that had once been the center of God's dealing with his people was in ruins wasn't just a reproach to the people of Israel. It was a reproach to God. It was reflecting on badly on who their God was. It was a reproach to the honor and to the name of God. And so what does he do? He defines the problem. It's a big problem, guys. This is bigger than just our city, but this has to do with our God. Do you know Jesus did the same thing? 
Jesus did this. In fact, in Matthew chapter 9, it says that Jesus said this to his disciples. He states the problem. The harvest is truly plentiful, but the laborers are few. That's the problem, he says. The fields are ripe for harvest. There are are tons, there are thousands upon thousands, Jesus is saying, of souls that are unsaved. The problem is there's no workers to go out. He's stating and defining the problem very, very clearly. And then Jesus gives a solution. In the next verse, he says, Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Here's the problem. The harvest is ripe. A lot of unsaved people that need to be reached. The the problem, there's not enough workers. There's not enough laborers. The solution, we need to pray to God. That God would raise up laborers. And then what Jesus does next is so amazing. He says, okay, you're praying for more laborers. And guess what? You get to be an answer to your own prayers. Because the next thing it says is he sent them out. I'll read it to you. Jesus called them to be a part of the solution. In chapter 10, verse 1, it says, And when he had called his 12 disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kind of disease. And then in verse 5, it says, And he sent them out. I love that. Hey, guys, here's the problem. Fields are ripe. A lot of unsaved people. We need more laborers. Let's pray and ask God to raise up laborers. Okay, amen. Okay, guess what? You are the ones he's raising up. It's time to get out. And he sends them out. Nehemiah does the same thing here. The first thing he does is he defines the problem. The walls are down. It's a reproach, not just on us, but on God. And then the solution, the next thing must be simply stated. Look at the second part of verse 17. He says, come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may longer, no longer be a reproach. Nehemiah figured if God could move upon this pagan king's heart, King Artaxerxes, to supply him with everything he needed to be able to build these walls, he certainly could move on the hearts of his own people to join in the work. Nehemiah wasn't there to do it for them, but to partner with them in the building, the rebuilding of the wall. I love what S.D. Gordon said. He said, cooperation increases efficiency in amazing proportions. Two working together in perfect agreement have fivefold the efficiency of the same two working separately. A united church is an unconquerable church, but the moment that cooperation is sacrificed as essential, real power is at a disappearing point. So in looking to motivate them to cooperate, Nehemiah states the solution. Guys, we need to rise. This is what God is calling us to, to rise and build. We need to do this so that God is no longer disgraced. And it worked. If you read ahead into chapter 3, you see that, that all the people from all the different backgrounds, they, they all come together and they start working. Everyone from all different backgrounds, they chipped in. But here's the third thing that Nehemiah told him. And this is probably the most important is that the Lord needs to be clearly seen. 
that the means for doing any work, anything that God is calling us to rebuild in our lives, anything that God wants to, us to partner with him and in, into bringing back to life in our lives, rebuilding something that has been broken, the means for doing that isn't in us, but it's in him. So notice what it says, verse 18. And I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and also of the king's words, that he had spoken to me. This was the biggest thing. Nehemiah told them all that God had did to get him there. The good hand of the Lord, or the Lord's hand was good upon me, he said. And I love that phrase. God's hand was clearly behind this. He gave him favor with this pagan king. And because of that, the king gave him protection in his travels. The king, king gave him provision to build. And so he's saying to the people, look, we, and, and, and I want you to picture this. He, this just gives what he says. He gave us, he, he told them of the good hand. Nehemiah's taking some time to tell him the story here. He's saying, guys, I want to tell you how this happened. We're getting the reader's digest version here. But he's, he's telling them, hey, this is how this all came about. This is what God has done. He's given a testimony to these men. He says, we got these miracles because our God is a God who does miracles. How many of you here are dads? Would you raise your hand if you're a, a dad? Okay. What does your hand do for your child, dads? One of the things that your hand does is it protects them, right? Your hand might stop your child and say, hey, don't, don't go there. Don't, don't touch that stove. And you're, you're, you're pulling them back. You're grabbing a hold of them and you're pulling them to, don't go in the road. My child... I, I walk him every single day. He's my dog, Red. And uh, cars are coming down the road. And for some reason, he's always wanting to walk right out into the cars. I'm always having to pull him back. That's, that's what we do. We do that with our kids. You know, we're holding them. No, don't go there. We're pulling them back to protect them. Our hands provide for our children. We're like, hey, what do you need? You need this? And what we're looking to hand them something and give them something to eat. And, and, and we, we're letting them know with our, as we put our arms around them that we love and care for them. We direct our kids with our hands. We'll say, hey, just come on. I'll say to my grandson, come on, Josiah, grab my hand, come with Poppy. And I'm directing him. I'm walking him. I'm leading him. We bless them with our hands. Do you know what represents the hand of God in our lives? It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit represents. It's when God says the hand of God is upon him, that person, it's speaking of the, the, the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit upon our lives. It's God's anointing. The Holy Spirit in our hearts is the one who seeks to direct us by convicting us of harm's way. The Holy Spirit guides us, the Bible says, into all truth. He gives us direction. The Holy Spirit provides for our needs. 
And this is what I want you to catch is Nehemiah is able to move in confidence and courage because he knows that the Lord has called him and the Lord's good hand is upon him. And you know what, guys? You and I, listen close. We can move in courage and confidence as well, knowing that God has called us to lead in our homes, that God has called us to serve our families, that God has called us to be lights in the darkness, that God has called us to be his ambassadors in the places where we work. We can move out with confidence. Nehemiah comes to Jerusalem and he's confident. Why? God's hand is upon me. Brothers, God's hand is upon you because his Holy Spirit is inside of you. And you and I, we can move with that same kind of confidence. So Nehemiah states the problem, that the people are in distress, that the walls are down, that the solution, he gives the solution, we need to rise and, and rebuild, and then he gives the means for doing this. The Lord is with us. And notice the response, the last part of verse 18, it says, and so they said, let us rise up and build, and then they set their hands to do this good The people hear what God did. They see the problem. They see the solution. They they recognize God is in this, and they rise up. There was a willingness to go for it. They saw the big picture. They caught the vision. They set their hands to do this work. And I want you to note this. For you and I to be able to be a part of the rebuilding work that God is wanting to do in our lives or in your home or in your marriage or in some relationship or even in our church, there has to be, listen to me, there has to be a willingness to partner with the Lord in that work. You know, God never... It's like, okay, you lay on the couch and I'll just do everything. No, he's like, you need to partner with me. I'm going to speak, you need to follow. And as you take that step, as you step out in obedience, you're going to experience my power. And oftentimes we don't experience his power until we take the step of faith. You know, a lot of times we're like, I want, I want to see, you know, the, I want the power. And then I'll take the step of faith and say, no, take the step of faith. Remember the Jordan River? The Lord has the, the, the children of Israel, the priests, they, they have to put their feet in the water first before it parts. They had to take that step. God does that to us all the time. But guys, he's wanting us to partner with him. So I have another question for you. What if someone took a tour of your life the same way that Nehemiah took a tour of Jerusalem? What would they find? What would they find if they toured and surveyed your life and my life. You know, in the book of Proverbs, it says, whoever has no ruler of his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. Would your life be like a city broken down without walls? Making you vulnerable with a sense of fear and insecurity and a sense of just like, man, I'm never going to get over this. I'm never going to have victory in this. 
Is there an area? Maybe you're like, you know, my life my life is actually pretty good, but there's just this one part of the wall that's broken down. God wants to rebuild that. God wants to work in that area. And I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you tonight when you guys get in your groups to not hide your eyes from the broken down places. But be willing to say, you know, this is an area of my life that God needs to work in. This is an area that is broken down. This is an area that I've just kind of let go. We need to admit the areas and the problems so that God can work. We need to admit the areas that are are broken down so that God can partner with us. Or we can actually partner with him is the better way to look at that. One more thing that I want us to see in these verses. We learn from Nehemiah is how he deals with opposition. Look at verse 19. It says, When Sanballat the Hornite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard it, they laughed at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Will you rebel against the king? As soon as the people say, let's rise up and build, the enemy says, let's rise up and oppose. And that's always the case. And the first way that we see them opposing here is through mockery and slander. Nehemiah says they laughed at us. They accused us of rebelling against the king. You know, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18, Paul says that God has given all of us a ministry of reconciliation. Reconciliation is taking something that has been broken and, or something that has been, been disjointed and bringing it back together. It's speaking of, of relationships, but primarily speaking about lives that have been where the relationship and fellowship with God has been broken. And God wants us to be these ministers of reconciliation. And we might say, okay, yeah, I, I want to do that. I want to be used by the Lord and helping rebuild broken lives and seeing people you know, come back into relationship with God and the enemy laughs and says you you think you're going to do that and he starts telling you all the reasons why you think you want to share with your boss you you think you want to lead a bible study at your work come on you can't do that enemy laughs at us hoping that we'll back down and back away in fear the enemy's tactic one of his big ones is ridicule mockery and intimidation but I want us to notice what Nehemiah does here. How does he deal with the opposition? First of all, we see the, what, what I'll call the daring of Nehemiah, verse 20. He says, so I answered them and said, the God of heaven will prosper us. Here's, his, here's Nehemiah being daring. We can count on God. Or we can count on the Lord. The God of heaven, he will give us success. You see, Nehemiah knew, he understood if God was in it, if he was behind it, there was nothing they could do to stop the work. God's work was going to succeed. These guys weren't fighting against the people of Israel. They were fighting against God. And you know what? The same thing is true in your life and my life. That's why Paul the Apostle in Romans chapter 8 says of you and I, I love this. He says, listen, guys, that we are more than conquerors. 
Not just conquerors, more than conquerors. Why? Because we're so awesome? No. Through him who loves us. We are more than conquerors because Jesus is with us and Jesus is behind us and Jesus is for us. And so like it's been said before, we are not fighting for victory, but we fight from a position of victory because Jesus has already won the war. So we see Nehemiah's daring. Next thing we see is the determination of Nehemiah. As he says, not not only can we count on God, but God can count on us. Verse 20, therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build. Nehemiah didn't put the work on hold while a crisis response team was formed to figure out how to deal with this. He's like, no, 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 no. We can count on God, and God's going to be able to count on us. Nehemiah proclaims who they are and what they should do. We are God's servants, so let us arise and build. So the first thing we see is the daring of Nehemiah. We can count on God. The second thing we see is the determination of Nehemiah. God can count on us. And the, the last thing that we see that Nehemiah does here is Nehemiah says at the end of verse 20, he basically says the, to the enemy, and you guys can get lost. You're saying, wait a minute. I don't see that in the text. Well, notice that, verse line, that last line. He says, but you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. This is the declaring of Nehemiah. He's declaring, you have no say in any of this. You have no part with any with us this city doesn't belong to you this city belongs to god and we are god's people and guys listen to me you and i can say the same thing to our spiritual enemies we can say you have no heritage no rights over me because i belong to jesus i belong to jesus i don't belong to you. I don't belong to this addiction. I don't belong to whatever it might be. I don't, this thing that, that for so long has defined me in my past. I don't belong to, I belong to Jesus. I've been made a new creation in Christ. So in Jesus name, take a hike. We have power. And I'm going to leave you with this, and then we're going to spend some time tonight in some discussion groups, and we're going to talk about this. One of my favorite verses is James chapter 4, verse 7, that says, Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And the word that is the key word in that phrase is submit to God. And you guys are going to talk about that tonight in your groups, why that is. Some people even, they'll, they'll quote this verse and they'll just say, the Bible says resist the devil and he will flee from you. No, 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 no. You got to get the first part first. Submit to God. That's first. That's where the power comes from. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. So guys, that means that we can move in confidence because we belong to God. We can move in confidence and stand in victory because we know that God is with us and that God is for us. In the same way that he was with Nehemiah, the Lord is with us to help us 
rebuild. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for these men. And Lord, I know that probably all of us here have some rebuilding that is going on in our lives. Some area that is broken down, that needs to be rebuilt, that needs your touch. And God, we want to be men who are willing to admit that. Men who are willing to partner with you in the work that you desire to do in our lives, in our families. God, I pray for any marriages here that, that are, are broken. Lord, that you would help these men to be able to admit that. And God, I pray that in these groups that it would truly be a time of iron and sharpening iron as these men just sharpening and encouraging one another in the Lord. And so we give you this time now in Jesus' name. Amen.